This is Books, Beats, and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum about her fully revised and updated classic best-selling book on the psychology of racism titled, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Enter any high school with a racially diverse population, and you will find black, white, Latino youth clustered in their own groups. Why is this? Is this self-segregation a problem to address or a coping strategy? Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum argues that straight talk about our racial identities is essential if we are serious about enabling communication across racial and ethnic divides. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum is president emerita of Spelman College, and in 2014, she received the award for Outstanding Lifetime Contribution to Psychology, which is the highest honor presented by the American Psychological Association. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, welcome to Book Speeds and Beyond. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Well, um, before we kind of really dive into the book, I kind of like to ask um, authors and historians, uh, what, what is it about your life experiences that compel you to do the work you do and also to write this book? Well, that's a great question, and I will start out by saying that I am a clinical psychologist by training, and when I went off to graduate school at the University of Michigan, um, I intended to become a therapist. I wanted to work with children and families as a clinical psychologist. That was my intention. But while I was as working as a graduate student, while I was a graduate student, I had the opportunity to serve as a teaching assistant with um, one of my professors, and I got interested in college teaching. So that was the first kind of uh, deviation uh, from my original path. And then because I had that teaching experience, uh, just as I was finishing my Ph.D., I was I got married, I moved to California. And while I was living in California, my um, husband was working at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I got a part-time job working as a counseling psychologist doing therapy with college students in the Campus Counseling Center. But I was also offered an opportunity to teach a class, uh, and that class was called Group Exploration of Racism. Mm. And I had never taught anything like that before, but I had taught other courses. And um, because of my research, which was on the experiences of black youth in predominantly white settings, I certainly had some background information that was relevant to a course on the psychology of racism. And so I agreed to teach the class. I was 26 years old at the time and an inexperienced teacher for sure. I was just getting, you know, my career was just starting. But even though I was relatively inexperienced and didn't, um, I'd never taught this course before, at the end of the semester, the students in my class were very enthusiastic about the learning experience. And they talked about how much they had learned from having the opportunity to talk about race. So many of them said, 
I don't know why I had to wait until I was a junior or senior in college to have hmm. these conversations or to learn about this problem in our society. There's so much silence about it. And they also said things like, everyone should take this course. It should be a requirement. And their feedback and all that I learned from that teaching experience really motivated me to do it again. And so we lived in uh, California, and I worked at UCSB um, for four years. And during that four-year period, I taught that course several times, probably at least ten times. Wow. And so I um, was really committed, I guess is the word, uh, to continuing that work because it seemed so important and so transformational for the students who were learning about it. And so I decided that really, of the two things that I was doing, working as a therapist and teaching about racism, that I really felt called to pursue the teaching about racism as my career path. So that's what I did. I um, pursued a career as a professor of psychology and teaching a course on the psychology of racism became really a signature course in my um, teaching catalog, so to speak. And I had been, after I started teaching and had been teaching for several years, I started writing articles about what I was learning. Yeah. I wrote an article uh, called Talking About Race, Learning About Racism, The Application of Racial Identity Development Theory in the Classroom. And that was my first article that was published, um, and it was published in the Harvard Educational Review, which is a very prestigious journal. And because it was published in that journal, many people read it and mm. uh, started to reach out to me to say, gosh, you know, this was a really helpful article. You know, would you come to our college and talk about how we can use racial identity development theory um, to think about what we're doing with our students in racially mixed settings, and I started giving workshops and talks. Very busy. Not just, <laughs> yeah, not just at colleges and universities, but also working with um, teachers K through 12. Mm. And those teachers, one of the reasons I wanted to work with those teachers was just for the reason that I said earlier. My my students, my college students, said, "Why didn't right. we have these conversations in high school?" And I was curious about that. So I, in my workshops with teachers, would ask them, why is it that you're not having these conversations in your social studies classes or in your English lit classes? Or, you know, why aren't you having these conversations? And they said, we don't know how. So mm -hmm. I really began to focus on trying to help people learn how to do it. And that led me to write my book, which mm -hmm. even though the title is Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And right. I do talk about that in the book. It's also about why it's important for us to have these conversations and what we need to understand in order to make those conversations productive. Yeah, I, I think that's because the title says, why are all the black kids sitting in the cafeteria? It makes me wonder, was that a, a, a question that kept coming up? And I was thinking, it was. why didn't they ask, why aren't all the whites sitting together or all the, the Latinos? Was, was there a reason for that? Well, there is a reason for it. I mean, the, the short answer is it is people, uh, the person, the people who ask the question most often when I was doing my workshops um, and working with uh, teachers in high schools and colleges, often the people asking the question were white themselves. Mm. And when um, a white person walks into the room, they are more likely to notice 
the people who are different from themselves, right? You know, it's like, oh, I see those black kids sitting together. Mm -hmm. Everybody else who's sitting together and looks like me, that's just normal, right? Right. I mean, that's that's the mindset Mm -hmm. that leads to asking that question. Mm -hmm. So, but of course, it is true that the white kids are sitting together and the Asian kids and the Latino kids and, um, you know, not everywhere, of course, but in a lot of places, that is the pattern that you'll see. And I certainly tried to talk about how that starts to happen because it doesn't happen in elementary school. It's more likely to happen in middle school or high school as young people are starting to think about their social identities and they're starting to recognize uh, either consciously or unconsciously that their racial identity has meaning and will impact their social relationships in certain ways. I think what's, what's outstanding is that this is the 20th anniversary of this book. And why why did you decide to pub- publish the 20, 20th anniversary edition of this book? And since the first publication, have things really changed in a sense uh, when it comes to the t- uh, conversation around race and racism? Yes. Well, let me answer you the first part of your question first, which is, you know, why did I decide to do this, um, the 20th anniversary edition? And one simple answer is the publisher asked me if I would. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the publisher, um, the, my, the first version of my book, the 1997 version, was uh, released again in 2002 with a new introduction, but basically otherwise unchanged. Mm-hmm. And um, so then as 2017 was approaching the 20th anniversary of the first release, Uh, The publisher wrote to me to say, you know, your book has continued to sell well. We're interested in doing an update. Is that something you'd be interested in working on? And her invitation was quite serendipitous because, indeed, I had been thinking about it. I had been thinking that over the last 20 years, there had been changes that I wanted to reflect on, not just changes in our society, but also changes in the knowledge we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, social scientists have been doing research on race, concepts like stereotype threat and unconscious bias, terms we hear frequently today. Uh, That research was not represented in the 1997 book because those articles were published in the early 2000s or later. And so I really wanted to be able to include the... um, new insights that social psychology has given us, but also to acknowledge the fact that our population is changing and there, you know, 2008, we elected a black president. Mm -hmm. There were some things that had changed in our society that I thought were worth talking about in the book. Right. And um, I guess to kind of really lay out the book, I think people need to have a good understanding of the definition of racism versus prejudice, because I think yeah. a lot of people get that confused. And mm-hmm. it seems like through your course, you were able to kind of elaborate and expound on that to help your students understand the difference. Can you lay out the difference between those two? Absolutely. Let me begin by saying that, as you correctly suggested, this was something that I thought was very important for people to understand in my course. And the course and the book are organized in the same way. Um, it's a three-part approach, which is basically what, so what, and now what. Mm. And by that I mean, what is racism? 
What's the difference between prejudice and racism? How do we understand how racism operates in our society, institutionally, systemically, in terms of policies and practices? Mm -hmm. That's very important to understand. And then, so what? So what does that mean in terms of how we relate to each other, how we think about ourselves and other people? And then at the end of the book is the now what? Now what can we do about Mm -hmm. it? So, And my course was organized in the same way. But the... um, definitions at the beginning are really an important part of the what. Many people use the terms prejudice and racism interchangeably. Um, When they say that someone is prejudiced, they might also say that person is racist. Um, But if they see someone doesn't have prejudice, then they think racism is not an issue. But in fact, prejudice we would describe as individual attitudes, Um, sometimes often based on stereotypes, uh, not always negative. You can have a positive prejudice towards something, but we tend to think of prejudice as negative attitudes toward other people based on limited information, often based on stereotypes. If we think about racism, um, sometimes when people hear the term racism, they think about individual actions, individual acts of meanness, for example, you know, um, calling people names or writing hateful graffiti or, you know, that those are racist behaviors. They don't necessarily think about the policies, the institutionalized policies and practices that systematically uh, advantage one group over another. For example, you know, when uh, the GI Bill was introduced uh, back at the end of World War II, there were things built into that GI Bill that, Um, favored white people over the black GIs and other GIs of color coming out of the service. People might say, well, like what? For example, um, home loans. You know, you could apply for a home loan and get um, a very inexpensive home loan to be able to buy a house and build up home equity. Uh, And if you, and you might say, well, that wasn't racially based, except for the fact that um, you were supposed to get those home loans in areas of new construction, and a lot of those new construction areas, those suburban communities that were being built, had racial covenants oh, that right. prevented black people from buying into those houses. Hmm. So if you were a black person and couldn't buy in a new suburb because of the racial covenants, um, then maybe you would try to buy a house in an older neighborhood um, but might have more difficulty getting a loan because it was an older neighborhood. And particularly if it was an older neighborhood that had a black population, it became a neighborhood that was, um, the term was called redlined. Mm -hmm. You know, literally maps were drawn that had red lines around areas where you couldn't get loans, but often those were the only places that black people could buy property. So they didn't have access to those loans or not at the same rates. In the same way, you know, the GI Bill allowed people to go to college um, and at you know, with the support of the federal government. But if the colleges are segregated, um, you don't have access to them Mm -hmm. if you're a black person. So um, those are policies and practices that systematically advantage one group over another. And we still see evidence of that kind of system built in or that legacy of those systems built into our society today. As one example. So racism is more of a structural thing. It's more of a systematic thing. Is that, yes, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it can be certainly, for example, 
you know, I can have, uh, let's imagine you have a white person who believes in white supremacy and wants to behave in a discriminatory way and has a negative attitude toward people of color. We would all describe that right. as racist. Mm-hmm. But a person doesn't have to feel that way to still receive the benefit of policies and practices that systematically advantage white people over other groups. So you're saying would white privilege be a derivative of racism? Absolutely. Uh Absolutely. Uh White privilege is a derivative of racism. Mm -hmm. And people, many people struggle with that term, white privilege, because they'll say, I have not led a privileged life. Mm -hmm. You know, I struggled. Mm -hmm. My family wasn't wealthy. I've had to work hard all my life. And there is to when when we say that someone has white privilege, it doesn't mean that they haven't struggled. It means that they're even in the midst of their struggle. Being white has helped them in ways that they may not even be aware of. Right. I like that that you said that because there was a, a a part in the book you used an analogy, and I think analogies are so great in breaking down complex things and more simplicity. And you use analogy of a, uh, I think it was a walkway conveyor mm-hmm. belt in an airport, and you use that to kind of describe racism, white privilege. Um, I think you use something called active passive racism. Can you use yeah. that analogy to that because that really helped lay it out sure we're going to stop right here and take a quick break and we'll be right back politically speaking what are they really seeking the cold war is over now it's the chilly season so many reasons to point the finger so many is that the reason why we join militias I can't be homies with the homie cause my boy is Krishna Why can't we get away from all of these annoying stigmas They group us over how we grew up When they shoot us then that shit is too much It's too much How did we lose touch? How did we lose love? When murder's easy as pulling off a loose glove It's a domino effect Started a long time ago, check A lot of lies are being said Society is blue, or society is red We all live together, but the pie ain't being spread Come visit the ghetto, or drive and see your res They tried to kill our spirit, but we rise and resurrect Hey y'all It really would be good if we had some dialogue and tried to talk We should talk We should talk Yeah I bet I really bet I bet I can change all the negative perspectives that you thought. Everything you thought. So the analogy I use in the book is one of a moving walkway at the airport. And I'm sure many of um, the listeners can imagine that, you know, being at the airport and standing on that moving walkway and being carried forward. Um, if someone has an active, actively embraces, this is the analogy I use, if someone actively embraces racist ideology and really believes in the idea of white supremacy, we might think of that person as walking fast on that walkway, mm-hmm. you know, really trying to get to a destination that um, is racist in nature, let's imagine. But there will be other people who are on that moving walkway who don't want to go to that destination, don't see themselves as agreeing with that ideology. But they're, and they are not walking, they're just standing still. But because the walkway is moving without their effort, those policies and practices are in place and they are being carried along, um, even without any effort, they're still 
headed in the same direction, not going as fast, Mm -hmm. but heading in the same direction. Um, There will be other people who will say, you know, I reject that ideology. I I don't even want to go in that direction. I'm going to turn around. Um, I'm not going to look in that direction. I'm just going to turn around. If you imagine yourself on that moving walkway and turning around facing the direction from which you came, you are still moving, but now you're moving backwards. You just don't see where you're going, (laughs) right? The only way to interrupt what's happening is to actively walk in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. You have to be intentional about it. Otherwise, you too will be carried along. And that is um, really my analogy for how racism operates in our society. It's so embedded from the beginning, you know, from the um, early days of U.S. history to the present. We can find examples of the way um, racist ideology has been baked into our system And we are carried along by those policies and practices, those decisions, which we might not have had anything to do with, but still are in place. And as a consequence, unless we are actively working to interrupt that process, we, too, are participating in it. Absolutely. You know, you should work with like a film production and have them create that imagery while you narrate over it. I think that would be phenomenal for kids <laughs> if they saw that in school. That would really help them understand uh, the different uh, idiosyncrasies and, and tears that, of racism in, in, in our society. I, I think that was such a good analogy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So um, because of that, I was thinking, why why would white people who are advantaged by racism want to end that system of advantage? I mean, what, 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 is, what are the costs of the system to them? Why, why would they? Well, the, yes, that's a great question. And one of the things that I like to say, you know, we all have heard this expression, there's no such thing as a free lunch, <laughs> you know, that um, what looks like a benefit um, and may in fact be a benefit in some ways, also has costs associated with it. Mm -hmm. So if we have significant significant percentages of our population um, experiencing inequity as it relates to education, as it relates to employment, as it relates to access to health care, as it relates to um, other public services. And um, if we think about the fact that as a nation, and I'm speaking now about the United States, Mm -hmm. we could speak about this on a more global perspective, but speaking about the United States, if we think about the United States, the United States cannot thrive unless all parts of its communities thrive. If we've got significant portions of our population defined on the basis of race that have been kept out of high-quality education, high-quality educational opportunities or economic opportunities, um, we will find ourselves increasingly dragged down Mm -hmm. as a nation because we have underdeveloped talent, as one example. Mm -hmm. Um, On a more personal level, people who have been exposed to stereotypes about groups different from them, and we all have been, but if you have taken in the stereotypes to just use as an example, black men as dangerous Mm -hmm. um, and then are living in fear of people who mean you no harm, um, then 
you know, you are experiencing anxiety and fear in ways that you wouldn't otherwise need to. Right. There are lots of ways in which we can see how um, we cut ourselves off from each other and to our detriment when we uh, continue to engage in the racism that, you know, if we don't do anything about the racism that's built into our society. Absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, uh, another good part of your book is, you know, you lay it out, the definitions, you, you you set that framework. But like with anything, we want kind of like implementation. How can we how can we move forward if we are really active in changing this? And um, your book really helps as a, as a guide, especially for parents. I'm a parent myself. And I mean, <laughs> there's seven and five right now. And uh-huh. uh, just just trying to keep them as innocent as possible, you feel like that's your job. But your book kind of lays it out in, in, in a different way, um, really engaging the, the kids in the conversation. And when a lot of us could be a little bit scared about that, but I think more more black families than other families are a little bit more willing to do that conversation, but still we are still timid. So how should a parent talk about race to their their young child? And and also, uh, I think this is important, why is colorblindness not the answer? Well, one of the reasons colorblindness is not an answer, and I think that will lead us to why we should talk about it (laughs) and how we can, um, colorblindness is not an answer because children are not colorblind. Mm -hmm. They notice difference. You know, they notice difference. They ask questions about it. Um, sometimes parents will say, my child doesn't notice difference. They never comment on it. Mm-hmm. And what I will often say is that in those situations, it might not be that the child has n- not noticed, but they've learned they're not supposed to mention it. I know. They're so smart. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that they, um, so I think sometimes children, it's not that they're colorblind. It's just that they're color silent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but if you take a preschooler before they've learned to be color silent, if you take a three-year-old, three-year-olds will notice and comment on difference. They'll say, mommy, why is that person so dark? Or mommy, why is that person so light? Mm -hmm. Or as one of my kids said to me once, mommy, why is that person so fat? (laughs) You know, know, they, they, um, they notice and they comment on it. Too often the parental response is to say, Right. You know, don't talk about that rather than answering the question. I, I will give as the example my that my son who said, you know, mommy, why is that woman so fat? And we were in the grocery store and there was a quite large person. Mm-hmm. And I was embarrassed, of course, because, you know, he wasn't whispering. Right. <laughs> you, know, right. you know, he just kind of blurted it Probably out. Probably looking him right in his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> heard it and um and so your first impulse is to just you know hush the child but then i said you know people come in different sizes Mm -hmm. uh just like some people are short some people are tall people come in all different sizes it didn't have to be a long conversation Mm. but in the same way uh, i tell a story in my book about my three-year-old coming home from his daycare center picking him up from the nursery school and he asked me Mom, Tommy says my skin is brown because I drink chocolate milk. (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) Well, of course, there's a question. You know, you can't just say, oh, forget about that. You know, it's like I have to answer that question, which I was able to do. And I said, 
No, you, of course I said no. Your skin is not brown because you drink chocolate milk. Your skin is brown because you have something in it called melanin. Yeah. Everybody has some. The more you have, the browner your skin is. And then I said, and at your school, you are the kid with the most. Right? <laughs> they um, like that, yeah. He did. He was tickled <laughs> by that. But but even as I explained it to him, I wondered who was explaining it to Tommy, yeah, right? True. You know, the kid with the chocolate right. milk theory. <laughs> and so um, I went to his school the next day, and I said um, to the teacher, I asked the teacher, how was it that she was responding to the questions that kids had about difference. Mm -hmm. And her response to me was that it wasn't coming up. It hadn't come up. Hmm. But, of course, I knew it had. And I don't think she was trying to uh, misrepresent the truth. I think she just maybe hadn't overheard those conversations. Or sometimes we have what I call selective inattention. You know, if something is being said that we don't really want to deal with, we just kind of tune it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, But, in fact... Kids have questions, and those questions can be answered in a way that is not um, overly complicated, but allows them to recognize difference as just part of the way the world operates, not something that's bad. Um, Just like, you know, we have red flowers and yellow flowers and, you know, pink flowers. We appreciate them all. Um, We just have so much stigma behind it that we feel like we're going to put that stigma on them as we talk about it, but if like, exactly, yeah. and that's and that's the part that we have to work on. There was a natural opportunity, which uh, I like to mention because I think any parent could use this. When you know we had this conver- I had this conversation with my son, and there were a few other conversations that I write about in the book that came up as he was you know in this three year old and four year old period, stimulated by conversations he was having with his peers as one of a few black kids in a mostly white classroom, the only black kid actually in his particular classroom at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we were having these conversations, but one day we were cooking together in the kitchen and I had taken out an egg, the last egg in a carton, and it was a white egg. Mm -hmm. And then I needed another egg. The new egg was in a carton of brown egg. Mm -hmm. So now I had a white egg and a brown egg on the counter getting Uh ready to make something. And uh, and my son said, look at these eggs, you know, one's white, one's brown. And I said, yes. I said, just like people, watch this. I broke the eggs, uh, and and lo and behold, they were the same on the inside. Yeah. And I said, people are just like that, too. They look different on the outside, but they're the same on the inside. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and he was like, that was a good one. <laughs> you know, he um, he was like, "Wow, yeah!" And then we were, as it happened, we were making pancakes, right? Mm. And, oh. uh, and and the batter was white, right? When yeah. you put that batter on, but then it turns brown. I mean, there were so many ways to have that conversation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's cool. I I I think um. Another thing, I, I was talking to some friends, and you can find us all over social media. Color blindness, right? Some of us take offense to that, while some think saying color blindness is is a good thing. Not noticing is actually a good thing, while some think, no, you should notice. So what what do you say about that? Well, I think it's important to notice, not because we want people to discriminate or to, um, you know, devalue the differences that they notice, 
but we're not all having the same experience. Mm-hmm. The best um, insight I got about this was when I was working on my um, a research project. I was interviewing black parents who were raising their children in a predominantly white community. And I was talking to a dad about his children's school experience. And he told me that when he goes to school to talk to the teachers, he always finds it problematic when a teacher says, I don't notice difference. Yeah. You know, um, and he was saying he had a conversation with a teacher who said, you know, I treat all the kids the same. I don't notice. I'm, you know, I try to be colorblind. I don't notice difference. I treat all the kids the same. And his response to her was, you treat them all the same as what? Oh, right. <laughs> you know, the same as if they're all white. You know, mm-hmm. my child is not white and he's having a different experience you know being one of a few black kids in this class and I want you to know and understand that his experience is not the same as everybody else's um, and that uh, and that doesn't mean you know I want you to treat him in a discriminatory way but I want you to acknowledge that he has a different cultural context you know that he's lived in different places has a different kind of experience mm-hmm. and even sitting in the classroom you know, as you're reading the books, you know, some of the kids are seeing themselves represented in those books. Right. And my son maybe isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe you need to think about how can I ensure that he is also seeing himself represented. That would require some intentionality right. that you wouldn't exercise if you are so-called colorblind. Right, right. I, I, I remember those days growing up in school, too. I felt like when it came to, because I was in a lot of the... AP classes, honors classes, and although I was in a predominantly black school, something about the AP classes were seemed like most of the white kids were in there, and I, I just didn't yeah. understand that because I knew a lot of very intelligent black kids, but I, I, I just didn't understand that. But when it came to times when they would talk about stuff that was uh, African-American and so forth, it was always, you know, the same narrative, slavery and so forth, and felt uncomfortable. You know, it felt like yeah. I am like the center of attention. There was never times where they would talk about black stuff in a positive way, it felt like to me. Yeah. And yeah. 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 And thinking about that, and even in the context of slavery, you know, so many of the young people that I have interviewed over the course of my career, uh, black kids who were in majority white schools, or even if they were in a majority black school, would talk about the discomfort yeah. of the conversation about slavery. Um, because, and, and of course, we should study that history. Mm-hmm. It's not that we shouldn't talk about it. But I think it's important to talk about it in a way that tells the whole story. It's not just about victimization. Yes, exactly. It's also about resistance to victimization. We should learn about slave rebellions and we should learn about, you know, the white people who stood up against racism um, and, Mm -hmm. you know, the abolitionists and the coalitions between people like Frederick Douglass and Mm -hmm. the white people who joined his cause in terms of abolitionism, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, There are lots of there can be empowerment in a story that is both about unfairness, but also, you know, oppression, but also about resistance to oppression. And it seems to me we give very short shrift to the resistance narrative. We'll be right back.
It's like a jungle sometimes It make me wonder how I keep from under Even Stevie can peep we asunder Hard to focus on the sashimi I get asunder When journalists read what a death told me on every sunder Hard for me to attempt to compete with plunderers When they protected by silence and others and codes and government I'm on some other shit, don't ask me how my summer went Little black boys, grown black women, America's mothering Swallowed by the jungles, blacks been getting harambeed Old lynchings just on new tape Damn that's digital, damn this critical Master whip turned to a handgun, oh what miracle They truly believe that we are minimal and we are animals They mouth is full of flesh when they call us cannibals Spit it out, tell me what you think about what be happening round town what be happening down south today i heard the cops shot a man with my last name he was trying to shoot the autistic kid but had bad aim the nation's in an outrage troopers want about face hooper shot out west with promise heading to nba now i gotta be clever with cops just so they disengage this armor with charm ought to make it to another day that's just exhausting proceed with caution Mm, it's like a jungle sometimes It make me wonder how I keep from going under <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes It make me wonder how I keep from going under It's some things I never understood Will never understand How cops could just kill a man He was with his girl you think Hey, if you're enjoying Book Speeds Beyond Do us a big favor Go inside any of our show notes of any of our episodes And you'll see an icon that would take you to iTunes, where you could subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You brought up some good points in your book. You know, we, we might talk about abolitionists. We might talk about civil rights movement. And a lot of these are um, black figures, which is great, you know. But how come we don't know much about uh, white anti-racist people? We know so much about white racists, but how come that's not taught? What, why is that? Well, I think that uh, sometimes it's not taught because the people in the front of the classroom don't know, mm. right? Um, you know, when I have done a uh, when I've done workshops with white educators, I've often asked them to think about white people they can name, either living or dead, who were actively working against racism, mm -hmm. and often they don't know very. You know, they they're hard pressed to name people. Right. And I think it, we do need to make those um, those folks living and not only in the past, but in the present, more visible. You know, people should not only read my book, uh, but they should also read Jim Wallace's book. Mm. Jim Wallace is a white pastor who's written a book called America's Original Sin, mm. which is uh, about how racism has been baked into our society from the very beginning and how we can try to undo that moving forward uh, and his you know he's been at that work a long time everybody should know his name as an example mm -hmm. but the um, fact is that our silence about racism in general um, leads us not to talk about those working against racism and when we do talk about it we do often turn to the people who have been most oppressed by it right you know when we uh, talk about you know, when a, when a college or university is struggling with um, a racist incident on campus, uh, sometimes their first response is to invite a person of color to come to campus and talk about mm, yeah. racism. Mm -hmm. and, and I can understand why that is. Sometimes they want to bring somebody to campus 
that the students of color will see, um, will identify with and see as someone who looks like them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's value in that. But if it's a majority white campus struggling with a issue of racism on its campus, I think there's real value in bringing a white person to come and talk about what white people can do about mm -hmm. that. Um, and I think that's a strategy that gets overlooked. Well, let me ask you about that, you know, cause, uh, because the society we live in, racism permeates everything. Sometimes seeing someone that looks like you talk about a situation, it kind of puts your guard down and you kind of open up a little bit more. So I definitely sure. understand mm -hmm. what you're saying. But how would how how would you describe the role of a white ally? And, and what is that? Is, is with that person you just said considered a white ally? Uh, absolutely. So people, you know, I have been um, talking to folks lately who have said that the term ally is maybe not the best term. I still use it. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, a white ally is a person who is part of the dominant group, benefits, you know, when we talk about racism as a system of advantage, mm -hmm. the advantage group is indisputably um, white European Americans in the context of the United States. That's how the society has been structured. And when we talk about systematic advantage, that's where the advantage lies. That said, there are people who are in the advantage group who recognize the inequities, the unfairness, the um, need to create a more equitable society and who use their advantage, their privilege to speak up um, I'm going to use a very current example. We all um, have, many people, of course, have heard about what happened at the Philadelphia Starbucks. Yes. When, you know, uh, there were two black men waiting for a third person, uh, sitting, minding their own business, just waiting for that uh, third person to come. The third person happened to be white, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, while they're waiting, they were they hadn't ordered yet. They were waiting for their third party, and they were arrested. The manager asked them to leave. The Starbucks manager um, of this Philadelphia store asked them to leave because they, she said they were, quote, loitering. Of course, they were legitimately waiting for the third person who arrived um, just as the police who had been called also arrived. Mm -hmm. And as uh, your listeners probably know, the police arrested the two black men and took them away. But there were a lot of white people in the store at the mm -hmm. time that this happened, in the Starbucks store. And they um, videotaped what happened and posted it and spoke up and said, they're not doing anything. Why are you arresting them? Um, and you might describe that bystander behavior, that active bystander behavior as ally behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, they saw something unjust happening tried to intervene. They couldn't prevent the police officers from making the arrest. Later, the men were released. They hadn't broken any laws. They were not charged with anything, but they were detained. But the white people who were witnessing were taking um, the video and trying to do what they could to interrupt what was happening. That's an example of ally behavior. Mm. You know, the person who has the advantage stands up and speaks to What's going on? Right. You can imagine in that particular situation a scenario where there might have been a black person who was trying to intervene, and the police might yeah. have said, "Okay, we're taking you too." Right. Yeah. So, so that you know, the person who 
is in the room, sees something wrong happening, speaks up, um, or it could be the person who's in the meeting. Let's imagine there's a meeting and uh, there's a room full of white people, no people of color in the room, and the white people are talking about making a policy that is going to either intentionally or mm. maybe unintentionally yeah. negatively impact um people of color. Mm -hmm. And the white person says, I think if we do this, it will cause a problem. I don't think we should implement that policy. You know, if we build this uh, metro stop in the middle of this neighborhood, it's going to disrupt that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Or if we build this metro line and we don't put any stops, people in this neighborhood are not going to have access to transportation. You know, those are decisions that people are making all the time, and sometimes they're negatively impacting communities of color, neighborhoods that have been segregated, etc. Um, the ally is the person who thinks about the people who are missing from the room and speaks up. Mm, yeah. And, and I thought it was interesting, um, with your course, um, as the white people started to understand racism to, yes. to some extent, um, some of them started to feel guilty and I was wondering th those white people who started feeling guilty, how, how, how can they keep their positivity about being white yes. and still do and still be a, a white ally in a sense? Yes. Well, guilt is a common response. It's a common emotion. Um, you know, many people who are quite well-intentioned, think of themselves as good people, really don't know, maybe haven't thought much about the way racism works in our society. Mm -hmm. My experience teaching about it, often to audiences that are predominantly white, um, has what I've observed is that as those uh, white students or members of the audience when I'm speaking, you know, those as white people learn more about racism and the way it has been built into the society, they do start to feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. You know, many people do. Um, they feel a sense of, they recognize the unfairness, they feel guilty about it. And it's important to acknowledge that while that's a legitimate feeling, guilt is not useful. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, guilt is paralyzing. And the reality is, you know, if you were born in the 20th century, in the 21st century, you know, these things were happening before you were born. I was born in 1954. Racism mm -hmm. was well underway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you know um, I was born into a system that in which racism was already operating. I don't take, you know, I don't have to say it's my fault. Um, no one has to say it was my fault. I did it. But we can all say we have a responsibility to try to fix it, mm -hmm. to try to change it. And so moving from guilt to action is the most productive thing to do. Right. So sometimes the question then is, well, what's the right action? Right. What should I take? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what to do. And that becomes, uh, think, and this is what I urge my students to do. I urge my students to think about their own spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. You know, where do you have influence in the world? Well, you know, I was a professor. I had influence in my classroom. Um, I had influence on the college where I worked. Mm -hmm. I had influence in my children's school and could ask questions at the school meetings. Mm -hmm. um, we all have spheres of influence, and we have to think about 
how do I use my sphere of influence to bring about positive change? Right, because if that's the definition of racism is structural and it's about influence in a sense, I guess you could use that word because it's power as well. If you know where Mm -hmm. your influence is, you can disrupt it there. You can disrupt racism there, right? Exactly. And and it's important to say, you know, um, some people define racism as prejudice plus power, mm-hmm. you know, the negative attitudes in, and then the power to implement them. Right. Um, I prefer the definition that we've been talking about, yeah. which is racism as a system of advantage. Right. But one of the reasons I um, prefer that language is because I learned when I was teaching that many of my students would say, power i don't have power right. you know yeah. how you know i don't feel like a powerful person hmm. but i think that we um i think we have more power than we think yeah. <laughs> you know i know we have more power than we think because <clears throat> if you think about power as influence you know some people have a lot of a wide sphere of influence you know if you're president of the united states you have a lot of power mm-hmm. you influence a lot um but you can be you know, a person living a simple life in a community and you still have power mm-hmm. because there are people that whose lives you touch who you can influence by your example, by the things you say, by the questions you ask, um, certainly by the votes you cast um, in a democracy. But we all have the power to influence others, and that is really what... I wanted my students to understand, and I want the readers to understand. Mm-hmm. We all have the capacity to bring about change. All right. We'll be right back. thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. And until that moment, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other. There is scarcely any hope for the American dream. Born into this world, my son was given my face and tell him never be content, still or slightly complacent. As you grow into a man, I hope you see implications in a world where you live but don't belong in a nation where you only justified if you were light or Caucasian. And your mama lost the roots, your daddy black and he beige. Only way you see your freedom is through mental evasion. Your entire life is work, so keep the peace and liaison. And never be misled because you oppressed and you suffer. So play in Candyland, but show you never a sucker. You an eagle in the sky, you watching over the buzzers. And I know you've never spoken, but you see it and you learn it. And I know you've watched the truth and you see it and it's a burden. The people walk in masses, but move in silence, the evil lurk. Politicians sick and they lying, I know they need the perks. Honest living, kill us, we dying and we ain't seen the worst. To my sons, my brothers, it's all the same. Like your uncles that hold my name I'm going off in your future playing this game I'm optimistic cause life comes from the rain Nothing can stop your shine long as I'm here And when I'm gone, cut all my records, I appear Me and your mama dry jewels, never a tear Even in silence, we know your vision is clear
before we get to the show, I just want to say thank you for all of you out there who are supporting the show by clicking on the links and purchasing the music or the books. We appreciate you very much. And for all those who haven't and are thinking about supporting us, just go inside the show notes of each episode and click on the links to the songs or the books, and it'll take you right to where you can purchase it. And it's a win-win because you support the guests of the show, um, and we get a small commission, which then goes toward to the operations of the show. So again, for all you who have supported us, thank you so much. And for all those who are thinking about supporting us, we appreciate you as well. All right. Peace. I want to take it back to, you know, focusing because in the title you have black kids. And I, I really wanted to focus on because you talked about um, identity development in adolescence and yes. how black youth are more cognizant and more actively engaged in uh, exploration of their racial ethnic and cultural identity than white youth. Why are black yes. youth more active in this exploration? What is it? Um, how we deal with our identities, um, and we all have multiple identities. You know, if you ask somebody to describe themselves, yeah. um, if you do the exercise of asking people to complete the following sentence, I am mm. fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you describe yourself? You know, I can describe myself, if I were filling in that sentence, I could say, I am black, I'm female, I'm mm. from Massachusetts, I live in Atlanta now, but I'm from Massachusetts, I am 64 years old, I am the mother of two, I mean, there's lots of different ways I can describe myself. Right. And the question is, which of those identities is most salient mm. for us, mm-hmm. right? Which of those identities do we think of as as most important. And the reason we choose the identities we do is not entirely self-determined. It's largely shaped by the way people respond to us. Uh, yeah. You know, so if I am a young black male walking down the street and I see people move out of my way as I approach, or I hear the sounds of car doors locking as I walk by, or I notice that people are following me around in a store, or I am hassled by a police officer, or I'm sitting in Starbucks minding my own business, (laughs) and, you know, someone calls the police, I have to ask, why are they doing that? Mm -hmm. It's not because I'm tall. (laughs) (laughs) It's because I'm black, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's that identity that other people are responding to. Mm. And when young, when, when children start to become adolescents, two things happen. Their bodies change, mm-hmm. right? They start to take on the adult form of their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, they get taller. They develop, you know, young girls are developing their breasts. Mm-hmm. Boys are, you know, their voices are deepening. Mm-hmm. They're becoming more adult-like in their appearance. But their brains are also developing. Right. And the change in the brain allows you to think in a more complex way than you do when you're a child. Mm -hmm. And so a complex question like what is my identity and how do people see me and how do they respond to me, um, those are questions that every young person is asking. But if you are white living in a largely white dominant environment, you're not going to be thinking about your whiteness because that's not what people are paying attention to. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? That part is just 
taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are white and gay, you might be thinking about your sexual orientation because that's what sets you apart from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are uh, white but an immigrant who doesn't speak English as her first language, you're going to be thinking about your identity, your ethnic identity, because it sets you apart, maybe because you have an accent or something. Right, right. Um, But when we think about um, kids of color, not just African-American, but Latino, Mm -hmm. Latinx, or Asian-American, or Native American, if you think about kids of color who are operating in an environment where the majority population is white, they are going to be thinking about what sets them apart. Uh, that's what. Um, that's why they are thinking about that identity, and that's why they start sitting together, even if they weren't sitting together in elementary school. Yeah, I, as yeah. as that starts to unfold, you see that desire to be with people who have a shared understanding of what you're going through. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I I can still remember those days. You know, like. It almost felt like a time to just relieve stress, in a sense, you know? Instead of mm-hmm. always being on all the time, I knew I can come there and we could talk stories or, or just feel like a person, you know? So Yeah, not have to explain yourself. Right, right. I, I, I want to ask you, what about, what about the argument that, you know, the right way to help black youth is to kind of separate them? from other racial groups and teach them how to embrace their positive aspects of their identity and history, almost like going to an HBCU. Sure. How do, how do you do, how do you do that? Well, I think that it, there is value. So let me say that this is not an either or question. Mm. What I mean by that is, is that every young person should learn how to engage with people different from themselves. Right. That's an important skill to have. And um, and everyone should develop it. And in an ideal world, young people would have the opportunity to engage with each other across lines of difference as equals so that they can really develop that skill, which is so necessary mm-hmm. in an increasingly multiracial and multicultural world. Right. That said, there is value in giving young people who are marginalized in our society the opportunity to be at the center of a learning experience where they are affirmed and have the opportunity to really immerse themselves in an empowering way mm-hmm. in their cultural and historical and um, identity-based experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I served, as you mentioned, as president of Spelman College. I was president of Spelman, which is the oldest historically black college for women for 13 years. And during that time, I could see example after example of young women who came to Spelman, often from uh, communities where they had been in the minority, um, and really wanted to have a college experience where they would be at the center of the experience, not mm-hmm. on the margin of it in any way. Yeah. And one of the value, one of the most valuable things about that experience for them was that they were able to see that anything they wanted to do was being done yeah. by somebody who looked like them. Right, right. You know, you want to be a doctor? Look at all these 
black women doctors who are coming back for a reunion, mm-hmm. you know, who can inspire you to achieve that goal. You know, you want to be an engineer, guess what? There's a long line of black female engineers coming out of Spelman that you can be part of. Yeah. You know, you want to, um, you know, be on Broadway. There are black women who came out of Spelman who are on Broadway today. So that is, um, you know, that's not the kind of experience that you're likely to have if you go to a majority institution. That's not to say that you can't have a positive college experience at a PWI, predominantly white institution. I went to Wesleyan uh, University, uh, graduated in the class of 1975. I had a very positive experience there. But when a student says, I feel I need this, it's important to acknowledge the value of that need. Right. And I totally agree because I'm going to, uh, I went to uh, Howard University, and being around that atmosphere, I think it really built my confidence. It broke a lot of stereotypes. Even as black people, we have stereotypes about each other. Absolutely. It Absolutely. really tore down all those stereotypes. And when I graduated, I felt so much more confident to deal with the world that was been trying to tear me down. Um, yes. So, yeah, I definitely agree there is. Um, some very positive aspects in going to an HBCU. I know some people might, might look at it like, why are you self-segregating? I'm like, no, I think this is just time for me to learn more about myself in a society that doesn't want to teach me. It's not that yes. I'm not trying. It doesn't mean I don't like you. It just means I need this for myself right now to be a better person moving forward. Yes, and I think that it's important to acknowledge that even at HBCUs, they are not um, – homogeneous right. communities. Yeah. You know, as you said, there are a lot of stereotypes that people can internalize about their own group. And one of the things that you discover when you're at an HBCU, it's not only that there are, you know, it's the diversity within the community. Right. You know, yeah. so um, so certainly at a school like Spelman, and I imagine it's true at Howard too, um, almost all of the students are students of African descent, Mm -hmm. but some of them grew up in inner cities. Some of them grew up in rural communities. Some of them came from suburban communities. Mm -hmm. Some of them came from the Caribbean. Some of them came from the continent of Africa. Some of them, you know, came from the diaspora, uh, you know, the black diaspora in Europe. Mm -hmm. They, there are a lot of different versions of the black experience. Uh, and, of course, there are students who identify with other groups as well. I think of the black Latinas, mm-hmm. you know, who yeah. came to Spelman or, you know, from the Dominican Republic or Cuba or other places, mm-hmm. Puerto Rico. Um, so it's uh, important for us to recognize that you can't lump everyone together in a shared universal experience. There's a lot of variety, diversity, right. even within communities. We'll be right back. I'm trapped, so 
stuck in this place I'm in It's like they got it locked, it's not in my place to win it But to be honest, this bondage is garbage And I acknowledge I can't remain, so I'ma break them then So as I loosen my handcuffs, shake off these shackles You gotta be careful what you're gonna let have you Cause they say he who's free is free indeed And I'ma run this race and need your speed My God And now I'm feeling like I'm ready to fly off You can be what you wanna be, what they taught you And then they built a glass ceiling trying to block you But they can never own what was never they own So keep running at home so they can't say they caught you Cause I'ma be a free man before I'm pushing old daisies And I ain't talking driving old ladies My driver's so crazy I'm looking for I want my I think the great part about your book, because I'll say I'm pretty ignorant to this fact, and I like that you did this in your book, um, because most of the time when we think about this, we just think about black and white issues, not knowing there's all this gradation in between. And you really talk about the Latinx community, Native American, Asian, Pacific Islander, Middle Eastern, about their identity development. Why, Why did you decide to do this in this book? Well, I did some of that in the earlier version of the book, but I expanded it in this book in part because the national demographic has shifted. Mm. So today, um, when we talk about, you know, racial issues, it's not just a black-white conversation. I think that there's certainly um, some core issues that have their origin in the history of slavery and the uh, theft of land from Native Americans, Mm -hmm. certainly the indigenous population. Um, has experienced racism since day one, and that right. was important to acknowledge. But um, in the U.S. population today, the largest population is Latinx, the Latino population, and um, the Asian American population. While right now only six percent is the rap is the fastest growing segment of the communities of color in the United States. And certainly in a post-9-11 environment since 2001, the anti-Muslim attitudes that we hear and read about were important to explore. Mm -hmm. And while not everyone from the Middle East is Muslim, um, and it wasn't the stereotyping of Middle Easterners um, was part of today's lived experience for young people, and I wanted to bring that into the light as well. Yeah, I thought some interesting things about that when you talked about the um, uh, other people of color. It really not just focused on their color, but it focused on their culture. It really focused on talking about their language or, or their or their style of dress, like language, for example, when it comes to Hispanics, how big language is and importance it is in accept, accepting your culture, it almost relates to how it is with um, uh, black youth might want to hide away and say um, they, they try to portray themselves in a raceless kind of sense so they can move through the world uh, in a way that makes them feel comfortable. Some You talked about how some Latinx might ignore their language to move through yeah. the world in a comfortable way. Or, or the Muslim community, some people might not wear their, their, their niqab or so forth so they can maneuver through society. It was interesting all of the different uh, factors that people had to do to cope. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, the, the pressure to, um, I think, particularly for adolescents, 
growing up in multiracial contexts, you know, they, the part of the struggle is, you know, to what degree do I need to assimilate to be accepted? To yeah. what degree can I claim my authentic relationship to my culture and my identity and still and be empowered in that identity without feeling like I have to give up a piece of myself? You know, can I bring all of my who I am to the into the room? And that's a question that a lot of people struggle with. And I think it was important to um, explore how the commonality of that struggle transcends lines of difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you feel about the current conversations about race and racism today? Are is it too much? Is it is it not enough? How, how do you feel about? It? I think it's not enough, mm-hmm. and and there will be people who will say, "What does she mean?" It seems like we talk about it all the time, <laughs> um, and I think that we. Um, have an introductory conversation a lot, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you know, um, but we don't usually sustain the conversation so we can get below the surface. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's really needed. I think one of the things that I write about in this version of the book is the value of sustained dialogue. Oh, and yeah. by sustained, I mean not just, you know, one afternoon and now we're done, <laughs> but bringing people together who are willing to commit over time to explore issues that may seem sometimes hard to talk about. But when we give ourselves the opportunity to really engage with these conversations across lines of difference, what we find, what I have seen happen over and over again when people have really committed to doing that is that they deepen their understanding, they build relationships, and they are... um, liberated in some ways from the oppression of the silence. We are all being oppressed by the silence yeah. because you can't solve a problem if you can't talk about it. Right. And um, this problem of racism in our society is still with us and will continue to be with us until we really get serious about having sustained dialogue, not for talk itself, but because that kind of dialogue leads to productive action or can and that's what we need productive action so how do you how do you do that like how do you get over that discomfort how do you get over that fear of wanting to kind of step out and do that is there anything you've seen uh well you know i'm going to use an analogy when i was a kid i used to go swimming in the summer with my friends i lived in a small town where there was a college and the college had a big pool and they opened the pool for community kids to use in the summertime. And uh, we would ride our bikes and we would go to this pool. And there was a high diving board. And you would, you know, climb up the ladder and go off. You could jump off the diving board. And I always wanted to do that, but I was afraid. Mm-hmm. And I would climb up that diving board. I'd, I'd go up the ladder. I'd walk out on the edge, you know, look out over the edge. And I'd be afraid to jump off. But meanwhile, there's a whole line of kids behind me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And, and the only way you know that you can jump off that diving board without killing yourself is by jumping. <laughs> and, um, and I, and that's my answer to your question about, mm-hmm. you know, how do you get started? I mean, there are organizations in lots of communities that are 
focused on creating opportunities for these dialogues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are church affiliated, mm -hmm. you know, interface dialogues that are being organized between uh, churches of different, you know, predominantly black churches partnering with predominantly white churches. Mm -hmm. There are secular organizations. There are organizations that people start, you know, um, I live in Atlanta. Um, there were two men, I write about this in my book, um, a black man and a white man who started something called the Atlanta Friendship Initiative, which brought uh, pairs, people of different racial backgrounds together to help them get to know each other in a segregated world, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in a world where even though um, we are not legally segregated from each other, it is true that in the United States still many neighborhoods are segregated, right. schools are still segregated, so it's entirely possible to live your life without connecting in a meaningful and authentic way with someone who's different from yourself. And and building those relationships inspires action. What moves people to make change? It's not just knowledge. It's also care and concern. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to take action because I care about an issue. Why do I care about that issue? Because it's affecting people I care about. And when we care about others people different from ourselves, we are inclined to take action mm -hmm. on their behalf. So we have to create knowledge, we have to create care and concern, and then we have to take action. Mm -hmm. And the um, the opportunity to develop those relationships requires us to risk some discomfort. Right. And how do we get over our fear of risking? It's like going off that diving board. Yeah. You'll only know... <laughs> <laughs> you only know you can do it until you try. Until you try. And, um, you know, and the first time you go off, you might have a belly flop and it'll <laughs> feel like, oh, right. God, that was hard. It hurt. <laughs> um, but unless you're committed to never going off a high diving board again, you just have to practice. Right. Right. And so that is uh, what we have to do. We have to. It's awkward sometimes. It's uncomfortable sometimes. But it gets better with practice. Yeah. And uh, and. And I have so many um, examples from the students I've taught and the colleagues I've worked with who will say, I got better with practice and it was worth the effort. Yeah. I think one thing I do, I just look at my kids because they have no problem. In, at their age, they have no problem interacting with people that look different than, than them. Yes. And we yes. teach them, you got to try. You got to go over, yes. overcome that fear, that anxiety. But then, as ourselves, we don't do it. So, yes. in some sense, we need to listen to the the, the, the preschoolers <laughs> and what they absolutely. do. Absolutely, absolutely. I was wondering, with I meant teaching about racism, writing the book about about the, writing this book. I mean, you have so much knowledge, so much wisdom, so much experience. I'm really curious: has like writing this book changed you in any way? Um, I would say, you know, certainly when I wrote it in 1997, it did, mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, I was a relatively unknown professor of psychology. Uh, you know, of course, I had written some articles and I, you know, was doing perfectly fine in my career as a college professor. But when I wrote um, this book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race?, the book was so successful. It sold, you know, mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of copies. I was, I, I, um, my public profile 
increased. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, I don't want to say that that changed me, but it, 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 um, forced me to, uh, develop some, uh, I don't, I'm not sure what to call it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a person who seeks the spotlight, yeah. generally speaking. <laughs> you know, so it forced me to, be a more public person than I was accustomed to being. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was important growth for me. I certainly wouldn't have become a college president <laughs> if I hadn't <laughs> learned how to be a public person. <laughs> right. um, and, uh, and it also helped me see, because I, you know, spoke to lots of different groups, that there are many people who want to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. There are many people who want to live in a more equitable society. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to harness the potential that all of us have together to bring about change. We have just, uh, I'm going to you know, use this as my closing comment because I know our time is coming to an end, mm-hmm. but we um, have just marked the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Yeah. And in 1967, he wrote a book called Where Do We Go From Here, subtitled Chaos or Community, huh. question mark. And, uh, I, and at the end of that book, he said, you know, it's our choice. We have a choice to make. Do we want chaos or do we want community? And each of us can choose community if that's what we want. And so I feel like, I have deepened my understanding of the importance of that choice and the fact that we all have a power the power to make it. And so, you know, I people often say, well, you know, given what's going on in our society right now, how do you stay optimistic? How do you stay hopeful? Mm-hmm. Um, I understand historically that whenever there are periods of progress, those periods of progress are always followed by yeah. uh, pushback against it. Right. You know, two steps forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. We have seen periods of progress in our society and we are seeing some pushback against that progress. But it is possible to move forward again. And each of us can make the difference in terms of our ability to do that. Well, Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, thank you so much for being on Book Speaks and Beyond. Thanks so much for having me. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes, or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you, which we would then put toward the operations of the show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already just want to say thank you so much for your support remember let's read listen explore